As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. A straightforward Peko Banyaya victory, an absolutely Ducati-dominated set of results. Feels like quite a lot of the 2023 MotoGP season, but it wasn't Mugello, it was the Italian Grand Prix, so it was that little bit more emotional for all those involved, even if, let's, let's admit it, probably wasn't the most exciting Mugello MotoGP race we've ever seen. Luckily, though, there was enough going on off the track in terms of... Well, I say luckily for injuries, there was certainly quite a lot of storylines coming out of this weekend in terms of Mark Marquez kicking off once again towards Honda, Mark Marquez getting under Peko Banyaya's skin, and some interesting future shenanigans involving Fabio Quartararo and uh, his management as well. Joining me, Matt Beer, to discuss it all on the Race MotoGP podcast are Val Harunchi and Simon Patterson, who has broken into somewhere in the Mugello circuit to try to find a quiet recording space. Uh, the, the fact that the, the press room was too noisy to record in and there was too much traffic to get out of the circuit, that sounds like it was at least a little bit busier than Mugello last year. I mean, a noisy press office isn't anything to judge by because all it takes to have a lot of noise in Italy is two Italians to be in the same place. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, the same could also be said about their standard of driving and traffic management. So it doesn't necessarily mean it, <laughs> but um, it was certainly busier than last year. Um, don't get me wrong. Whenever they sent us out a crowd figure that said that there was 77,000 people here, which was more than 2019, um, the entire media center immediately went, yeah, that's fictional. Um, <laughs> there was more than last year's 40,000 here, but I think a realistic number is probably about 50, 55,000 on race day. So not terrible. Um, not what we're used to saying at Mugello, but you know, at least it's an uptick again after uh, last year's, frankly, abysmal performances in terms of getting people through the gates. How did it feel atmosphere-wise? Obviously, this is not Valentino Rossi's heyday, but there are so many good Italian storylines in, in this field with how Bagnaia and Ducati are doing, how VR46 is doing. Did any of that feel like it's starting to get much much home crowd traction yet? Only after the checkered flag. Um, so the, the, the Mugello track invasion is is you know always a pretty spectacular event and to be fair they, they did a good job of that this year they crammed all of those people that were at the track into the start finish straight uh bagnaya did his bit on the podium which randomly included a dj set which 
I have no idea. But it happened. Um, you know, the Italian Air Force went overhead and blue, red, white, and green smoke, and the confetti cannons went off, and there's gold tinsel everywhere right now. Uh, the end of the race was, was good. It felt, definitely felt like the closest to a Mugello race since pre-COVID, but it's still not the, the heyday and pomp of the Valentino Rossi at his height era. I feel like I should apologize to Banyar a little bit because we're not going to spend a huge amount of this podcast talking about him, even though he won both races on home ground. He's firmed up his championship situation. But to me, this felt like the sort of weekend that we all thought we were going to see again and again and again through this season, particularly once other potential title contenders got injured or their bikes looked disappointing in testing. Uh, what did you two make of Banyar's weekend? Uh, excellent it's exceptional really very very good a very good response to Le Mans because you know it, it probably would have been quite tough on him to have this break to sit there and ruminate on another big batch of points lost but this was very much just I think the only other weekend that's looked like this is well and also results wise obviously so this not is like a not a great observation but Portimao was a bit like this this was even better than Portimao because I think even just looking at how the pace looked on Friday, you sort of had the impression that if Banyas cracked ankle, and he, he was racing with, with a cracked ankle after the after the Le Mans crash, if that doesn't cause him problem, he's probably got this. And he, he very much had had it covered on, on Saturday and on Sunday. Didn't look like a a huge amount of, of difficulty for him. Obviously winning a MotoGP race is tough, but he had he had the pace to to break in both cases. On Sunday, he specifically, you know, went for the slightly slower but slightly more durable tire. Then went gung ho from the very start. Make sure that made sure that Jack Miller's early hole shot was negated immediately. Then Jack sort of served a little bit as a rolling roadblock for the for the first lap and built up that four tenth gap that Banyaya had. Honestly, felt like pretty much game over at that point. It didn't. It did not feel particularly realistic that a soft tired Jorge Martin at a track where Martin is just doesn't quite have Banyaya's edge of pace. Didn't feel like he, he could answer. He gave it a decent go, but it was, it was I think, only ever going one way. Yeah, so as a little bit of context, um, on Saturday afternoon, after the quali- after qualifying and pole position, after winning the sprint race, he came to the press conference. He did the press conference. He went to leave the press conference. He stopped to quickly say hello to me and made a little bit of a chat. And then um, someone came and asked him for a photograph. And while they took the photograph, I had to hold the crutch that he's been using all weekend. So, you know, he, the ankle is causing genuine pain. Um, even if, you know, you're a world championship motorbike racer, the reigning world champion, you can't be photographed holding a crutch because that, that might, you know, that might make you look bad. Um, yeah, he, he has been in quite a bit of pain off the bike. That's fairly obvious in the way he's hobbling and limping around. Um, and not at all helped by the fact that the Michello press conference room's on the third floor. Um, but he, well, it seemed like once he got on the bike, it, it wasn't affecting him at, at all, which is what he kind of hinted at from his experience testing uh, with the Panigale street bike before coming here for the race. And honestly, yeah, like his weekend couldn't have been any better. Um, I'm not sure if he got pole position in the end, but he ended, or sorry, not pole position, uh, fastest lap, but he got pole position, two wins, fastest on Friday. It's basically, you know, the ultimate clean sweep weekend. Um, And you have to be really, really, 
you know, at one with your bike at the minute, MotoGP to deliver that. But he came into the weekend looking that way. Um, I think come Friday afternoon, you would have easily have predicted that the only person really that could have, you know, was up to beat Bagnaya based on his pace was Bagnaya, uh, which he has done in the past, which he really needed to not do this weekend after that long break, after the way Le Mans went. Um, but doing that this weekend, going to the next two rounds as, as part of this triple header and then going into the summer break, he's got the capability now to completely break the rest of the MotoGP field and go into the summer break with an actual championship lead for the first time this year with uh, him looking like the Paco Bagnaya that at the start of the season we expected to see all year. Um, he can deliver that now and, and if he does for three races, it's going to be a massive blow to everyone else. Yeah, he did get fastest lap, so it's, I guess, in, in Formula yeah, 1. The gentleman's set. Yeah, in Formula 1, parlance would call it a Grand Chelem, I guess. Pole position led every lap, even though he seeded the lead for a little bit. Uh, yeah, fastest lap win. Um, I think also another thing that I would describe as quite ominous for the prospect of a, of a title fight is the Ducatis looked really good. And I know, I know it's Mugello. I know they have... Uh, terabytes of data like whole servers like the size of the ending from Raiders of the Lost Ark you know that sort of file room um but it's you know one two three four five in the sprint one two three four in the main race in both cases Alex Marquez should have been among that group so it could have been a top six lockout in the sprint a top five in the, in the race and Banyaya, when when the Ducati is that good, you often do see Banyaya also assert himself over the other Ducatis. So that's where you get sort of the real big championship damage. Um, I, I, the Ducati clearly likes Mugello a fair, fair bit. But this this felt like, I don't know, old-timey. Old not old-timey. Old-timey is a stupid word to use here, but you know what I mean. Old-timey Red Bull ring. <laughs> it's also two words, not one. All right. Well, that's. I mean, hyphenate it probably. <laughs> I was already. I was already. You know, flagellating myself, and here you are. But yeah, it was. It was like you know. Remember the Red Bull Ring weekends where the Ducati was you know not so good everywhere else, but stunning there. This is like that, except it is also very good everywhere else. So, like you say, there were enough reasons why this could have gone wrong for Banyai psychologically, like turning up on crutches. And having had three weeks to think about a mistake, having the home crowd, crowdish pressure on him and the expectation, yeah, like you say, this is a place Ducati always goes well. You're the championship leader. You're the defending champion. You're the Ducati hope. Don't screw this one up. And then Saturday, he starts the day with an argument with Mark Marquez, which we'll come on to in a moment. And then we get this kind of bit of sporadic drizzle at the start of the sprint race as well. It did feel like there were lots of reasons Banyai could have got this wrong. And like you said, the fact he didn't just bodes really really well those those few slightly slippery laps in the sprint i i would say that was by far the best racing we saw of, of the weekend would you guys agree yeah yeah but i uh, it doesn't like that doesn't upset me if that makes sense like yeah sunday was a bit boring saturday settled down pretty quickly it wasn't too interesting qualifying was good but mostly because <laughs> because of the massive drop but i mean that's fine when the fastest guy starts up front and has the pace to break, I mean, that's what you're going to get. The podium battle was good, wasn't it? I mean, there are some motorsport categories that cannot count even on this level of entertainment. It was fine, genuinely. I, I, I saw some pretty, some pretty upset reactions online and suggestions that this shows that, you know, 
the regulations need changing. And I do think the regulations need changing, but just not, I don't see this as evidence. Again, if the fastest guy starts up front and the second fastest guy ends up second pretty fast, I mean, that's what you're going to get. I mean, the evidence maybe is that Marco Mazzecchi struggled to, to make inroads. I presume, I haven't heard what he said yet, but I presume he had some sort of front tire situation because he often does. But I, it was fine. It was okay. Like some of them will be like this. I, I was going to say it lowers the chances of people, more people getting injured, but somehow, no, still, still got plenty of that. I, I, I don't think the rules need changing. Um, I don't think we're in an issue. We're in a situation where this is caused by Ducati having an unfair advantage or anything like that. Um, I think the biggest problem in MotoGP right now is that Honda and Yamaha are still trying to play by the 2016 rulebook and not the 2023 rulebook. They need to change how they build motorbikes, which is something we've talked about before in the podcast, because at the end of the day, KTM and Aprilia are keeping Ducati honest. And, and maybe this weekend um, was slightly different, but this is the sort of circuit where you would have always expected the Ducati to be fast, even when the Ducati wasn't fast. You know, Mugello, uh, Texas, uh, Red Bowing long straights that that's where it's always been a strong bike so i think all we saw this weekend was a strong bike looking a good bike looking strong um but but they're not running away with things this year they're they're, they're absolutely not uh it's just that honda and yamaha have been left so completely far behind by aerodynamics and ride height devices that, that the gap looks bigger but that's not the rulebook's fault and it's not chicati's fault yeah when i, when I say change rulebook i don't mean to reel in ducati i don't think we're anywhere near a problematic area there i just you know all of our usual talks about the proliferation of aero and the the devices i should say for aero that i don't remember who said it during the weekend but one of the riders was like this is the one track where i like to have it like this is the one track where it, it's it's right to have and it's because of that you know because of the stability and specifically the the long long straight and the and the big bump but yeah, even here it can also be problematic if we do imagine that the arrow played a part in Alex Marcus being sucked in between two between two riders on the run to San Donato at the start of the third lap and nearly collecting both of them because he had all his downforce taken away and the same level of braking didn't work for him. Yeah, that was a that was a hell of a moment with Marquez slipping between his brother Marini, Jack Miller, not managing to take out any of them. That was uh, an amazing escape i think for for me i have this romantic idea that mugello is always going to be this epic race and i i need to actually look back and see how many times it actually has been an epic race and how many times it's just been the crowd reaction the fact that ducati's been quick in an era when it wasn't quick whether it's that kind of thing all blurring into one that makes me look forward to mugello more than any other any other marriage p race to watch i did find this one pretty flat but like you say i I suspect a little bit of aero was involved in some of the lack of passing in places in the field, but also there's one team absolutely nailing this and that team has one rider who's nailing it more than the rest. So I, I do think ultimately, like you say, you put the quickest guy up front, not a lot else is, is going to happen. One thing I will say is uh, just looking at the, the Alex Marquez incident in turn one, if there has ever been an incident that would make race control seriously look at aerodynamics and whether or not it's getting a little bit out of control it should be that one because if 
his brother Mark and Jack Miller had been like 30 centimeters closer together when that happened, we would be talking about very different headlines today because that would have been a catastrophic crash. Uh, we got really, really lucky with that today. The, the more I think about it, the more that it, it, the, the prospect of what could have been there quite worries me. Um, and, and, you know, that was because, he said afterwards, that was because of the arrow, because basically they're relying on it so much for downforce and break-in, and he didn't have any. And the bike needed to stop so much earlier. It was early in the race. He hadn't had the opportunity to gain the experience in the day before because he'd went down in the first lap. So it was all new territory for him while everyone else knew what they were doing a little bit. And yeah, it, it could have been like really, really, really nasty there. Yeah. Also, 360s may be a bit much, but yeah, obviously we have a new speed record this weekend, 366.1 by Brad Binder in the slipstream of others in the sprint, but it's, it's maybe a bit much, but that's, that's for another time. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not preach you and your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The closest thing that Banyaya had to a blip or problem through the weekend happened quite early and it happened during Saturday morning qualifying. It wasn't a new tale, it was all to do with Marquez and towing and qualifying positioning, but it, this uh, this provoked quite a reaction, quite an amused one almost from Marquez and quite a furious one from Banyaya. So talk us through it. So Marquez came out of pit lane, which, which here is in a bit of a tricky position because it kind of fires out into the fire line of guys coming across literally the scariest part of the MotoGP championship, that crest going into turn one at Mugello, which is like 200 and, or 370 kilometers an hour, fast, dangerous, aggressive. Um, Mark came out of pit lane looking for a tow and off Marco Bezzecchi, not off Peko Bagnaia, but he discovered Bagnaia happened to be there and he thought, well, that'll do. I'll slot him behind this guy. And Bezek, or, uh, Bagnaia really, really unusually just completely lost the plot with him. And actually, I think that the reason that Marquez was so like openly bemused by the whole thing when we spoke to him afterwards, like he was, he was practically giggling about it, was because if Bagnaia had kept going at the pace he was on, Marquez would have had to have dropped him because he was in cold tires straight out of the pit. Bagnaia spent so long waving his arms in the air that Marquez got his tires up to speed and then followed him around to P2 in the grid. Um, it, it was entirely a situation of Bagnaia's own making because Marquez did nothing wrong and nothing dangerous. And it, it surprised me a little bit. And it's something that absolutely Mark Marquez is going to exploit in the future. Because sure, it didn't, 
it worked in his favor in one sense here because he he knew that Bagnaya also needed to set a fast lap time and he followed him around to second in the grid and I don't think that would have been possible solo. But also just the the mere fact that he knows now that it rattles Bagnaya so much is just another tool in his toolkit for down the line that, you know, on the right time and not on the right day, he'll deploy just to wind him up. No, not for any other reason, not to set a fast lap time, just to rattle him. I mean, I, I think he, I think he terrifies people now with not just Banyai, not specifically Banyai, but just he's the now the most obvious and visible person to be doing this, and he always makes it work, and he does not like. There's no shame part to him to where it'll stop him from doing it. He doesn't feel great about it, but it, you know he'll live with it. He needs the result, so it's fine. So. He'll pull over as many times as he needs to let you back ahead and he'll wait for you as long as it's needed. And because he knows that sooner or later you have to go for it. Maybe your championship situation means you have to go for it. There's no championship situation for Mark Marquez. He's not in a championship. He's doing a bunch of one-off tests. Um, I mean, it's true. And there's, there is another way to tackle it as lots of people say and think they've discovered something when they say it. It's like, just do your lap, just go for it. Just don't worry about it. Well, that's that's how Maverick Vinales did it. in, I believe it was Friday practice. Maverick Vinales did it in the, trying to remember if I remember this correctly. I think it was FP2 and it would have been good if I'd looked this up before, but I didn't have this thought. I believe it was FP2, the qualifying simulation runs had started. Uh, uh, Mark picked Maverick because Mark picks people. And first run, Mark fell off trying to chase after Maverick. But he, he legged it back into the pits. Second run, Mark picks Maverick again. And wouldn't you know it, Maverick misses out on Q2 by one spot. <laughs> that spot effectively is grabbed by Mark Marquez, if you like. I mean, that's, that's what happened. N not playing games with Marquez there, refusing to play games there, in my understanding, ruined Maverick Vinales' weekend. So to look at that and they say, well, just don't worry about it. You can't. You, but th there's no good way to win. And in the case of the Banyai exit, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure Marquez was doing anything, but I'm sure that he greatly enjoyed the fact that by not doing anything he still really got on somebody's nerves and then exploited being behind them for a really good lap that was obviously unattainable by himself the thing is though in the context of this season it takes on a bit of a, a different meaning you know marquez annoying people in qualifying following them around it just feels like that has been part of mark marquez's game since forever but now it's one of the only tools he's got and that's that's the sad and most significant thing. And it, it, it leads into one of the most, um, try to think of the right word for this. It's one of the most interesting parts of the weekend, but it's also sad yet again, because we've got two more riders on the injury list. One of them looks like he might be out for a rather long time. It's Honda riders again. Joanne Mir and Alex Rins both got hurt this weekend. Mark Marquez, after the race, he crashed out of the Grand Prix himself. And afterwards he said, this is what happens when riders with what he called a winner mentality basically end up on a bike that can't win, which is the current Honda. So it wasn't a direct uh, a direct Honda, your problems are causing us all to basically break ourselves in, in desperation. But the whole combination of, you know, all Marquez has got is towing people around, annoying them in qualifying, and just having to push so hard on this bike that a crash is almost inevitable. It, it just seemed like 
somehow yet another escalation of how bad Marquez and Honda situations are. The the bike is a disaster. I mean, the bike is just fundamentally a disaster because at least so the the Yamaha in terms of results is equally as bad, but at least the Yamaha isn't trying to kill the people on it. Right, the Honda is just. Whatever it is about that bike, whatever it is about the way it delivers or doesn't deliver feedback or whatever, um, you know, none of us have rode the bike. None of us have rode any MotoGP bikes as a reference. But there's as some- far as you know, <laughs> <laughs> Matt, are you are you referring to Matt's secret career as a as a as a MotoGP rider in the early nineties? He is, he is, BT Sports tried to get him on the grid. I, but, yeah. I'm embarrassing enough on a bicycle without sticking an engine on the thing. That's, uh, this is not a good move. This, I, I, this is, this is why Matt is such an advocate for CRT bikes. He was on the grid at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, there's no way to check. Nobody has a full list of the CRT bikes. So, yeah. no, no one was <laughs> watching MotoGP back then either. Um, yeah, I mean. We can't sit here and say it does this differently from that, but it's obvious that it does something very, very differently from all the other bikes in the grid because these guys that are getting hurt in like sudden, violent, no warning crashes are world champions. You know, Alex Rins has won a race this year. Uh, Juan Mir is a world champion. Mar- Marquez is arguably one of the greatest riders of all time. And they're just getting launched off the bike uh, with with no warning whatsoever. The only person who's able to stay on the bike is with no ill feeling in the world towards Takanakigami, a lot slower than these guys. Um, and, and you have to think at this point, after you know the, the past season he's had in particular, that Nakagami is kind of limiting himself to not get hurt because his career is on the, the, the waning stages. And why would you, you know, cripple yourself with yet another debilitating injury caused by a bike that is a bit of a monster. Honda Honda have tried things to fix this. They've tried, you know, the Calyx chassis, the Calyx swinging arm. They've changed little bits and pieces here and there. But it's genuinely at the point now where the only solution I see to, to making the RCV 213 work is the RCV 214. Like this bike has to go into the metal chipper and they have to start with a whole new concept. And and all you have to do to kind of understand that is to look at a photograph of the bikes compared to the likes of Ducati. The Japanese bikes still retain that, that kind of Japanese short, compact, beautiful machines. The European bikes in the MotoGP grid right now look like dragsters. They're low, they're long. Because that's how you take the best out of the arrow, the best out of the, the ride height devices, and the best out of great, big, powerful V4 engines. Um, I don't think that the Japanese factories understand that. And until they do, I think we're just going to end up going around in circles, you know, literally and rhetorically, with, uh, with the Honda guys as more and more of them get hurt and less and less people want to ride the bike. No, honestly, I think Mark's winner mentality idea only applies to him that's my suspicion not to say that alex Rins and joan mir don't have a winner mentality but from from everything from the way it looks they're just trying to learn the thing they're just trying to figure it out and it keeps spinning them off and what Rins' season is it's not like meaningfully over but it's a big chunk of it is meaningfully over i mean he and it was there's a violent crash it was from what i've seen and we've not there's no great footage, I think, but it looked like a short snap high side going through Arabiata. 
just didn't didn't look like he was pushing too much. He was just you know running in the pack, and something happened. Uh, Mir's crash was front end, I think. Not entirely sure, but one of like it was number twelve, and that's not counting testing. Yeah, they they've both had their crash times and their crash periods, but this doesn't feel like two riders overriding a machine so much as two riders just they don't get it. They don't get how to prevent themselves from from falling. And if you hear, you know, Alex Alex Marquez, who has also been falling a whole lot on the Ducati, but that's you know besides the point. If you hear him speak about the comparison between the two bikes, just doesn't doesn't give the feedback to the rider. It can honestly it can go pretty fast. Not maybe not fast enough, but Mark reliably proves that it can go pretty fast. But it only goes fast enough for Mark's liking and in Mark's hands, in the hands of somebody who's clearly still an absolute genius and superstar and and dragging out lap times yes he has to use trickery for it yes it's not you know consistent yes you know it's one lap more so than race pace but dragging out lap times that are unavailable to mere mortals on that bike and still as fast as he wants to go he can only do it by basically giving himself a 50 percent chance that he's flying into the gravel it's it's a it's a sad predicament and my big thought from the weekend is i wonder who who honda's gonna slot in for for rins now i guess at assen i'd give javi vierge a go from world superbikes he's probably deserved it sam do you know who they're gonna slot in is it gonna be bradle i mean it's gonna be another home race for staff and bradle surely right it isn't confirmed yet, but well, no, Saxon Ring. I think Saxon Ring. They're probably not going to bother, right? Because it's not. It's not within the ten day window. Yeah, uh, I think. I think the fact that it's Saxon Ring might mean that they do bother with Bradle, actually. Well, this this is what I was going to say next. Like all of this, and now we're going to the Saxon Ring, the track where if he turns up, Marquez wins on a Honda. I and even at the start of the season, even among all Honda's other problems, we were just calmly predicting. Oh yeah, apart from. Austin, which he wasn't there for, and the Saxon ring. He'll win those, but the rest of the season might be a disaster. With how things are at the moment, okay, I'm sure he'll be on pole next week, but can he stay on that thing for a whole race I, under kind of Banyaya level pressure and with competitive bikes around him? I, I cannot see I cannot see Marquez winning next weekend. I can't see him actually finishing at, at, at this rate, given how hard he'll have to push and that added pressure of being at one of the tracks where he is basically unbeatable normally. So I, I threw that question to him this evening uh, and he, he kind of dodged it. But at the same time, he also kind of said, well, we're not going to Saxon Ring as the favorites. <laughs> and that's a that's a pretty big admission for Mark Marquez to make at a circuit where, you know, for context, he hasn't lost a race that he finished at this track. In fact, I don't think he's lost a race that he started at this track since 2009. That's how good his record is there. And he's going there and saying, I don't know if we can keep this going. I mean, all good things come to an end at some point. But if he doesn't win at Saxon Ring, that will be the ultimate sign of defeat for Honda right now. And it'll be the thing that makes Mark Marquez immediately go in the job market for 2025, 100%. For, for what it's worth, I think he'll win both the sprint and the race. But if he doesn't, <laughs> then the contract can go into the trash compactor next to the bike. Um, yeah. And honestly, even if he does win, I mean, I think Mark's, again, Mark's been fairly, 
I wouldn't say, I'd say he's been corporate. He's been like corporate annoyed at the state of Honda to where he's still been able to preach the, you know, the team unity and the faith. And that kind of slightly went out the window this weekend. This weekend after, you know, he's crashed in the race and there was the, the gesticulating towards the bike to the point where I think for a second, at least I wondered, did somebody have him off? Even though clearly nobody had him off. And then I realized, oh, he's just, he's mad at the, at the hunk of junk. It's like, and the fact that he's, you know, he's let that facade slip for a bit. <laughs> he's mad. He's really mad. He's riding really well. He's, you know, he's, he put that thing on the front row and he could only finish seventh in the sprint. And he somehow was in the podium mix on Sunday and it's, it's let him down again. I didn't, you know, he's probably made some sort of mistake, but it's, it's, you know, it's Mark. He needs to be on the ragged edge and he can't trust the thing very much it's it's pretty clearly i think i think the response to the crash was very very calculated um i think everything about that was was a very conscious decision because it it has just immediately become a meme online yeah and i think that was his way of sending a very very strongly worded message to honda because every motorbike race every motorbike racing fan in the world is going to see that photograph in the next 24 hours so you think it's the MotoGP version of uh, Formula One's Fernando Alonso Japanese Grand Prix driving for McLaren Honda, calling it a GP2 engine at, at their home race? It it has the potential. Mate, I, the problem for that, like the problem in that theory for me is he's just been off at speed. I know Mark is calculating, but I don't know that he's that calculating. He's got enough experience of um, crashing that a Honda true. right now to that build is, in some thinking time in, into it. It's not going to be a shock <laughs> for him that... This is true. I'm, 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 so this this really doesn't work on a podcast, but I'm just going to send something into our group chat right now for you guys to have a laugh at, because <laughs> you'll understand what I mean instantly about memes. And if you go <laughs> and have, really funny. <laughs> there you go. So so go and have a look at my Twitter. Um, it is 1901 <laughs> on Sunday the 11th of June, and I've just retweeted something. So go and have a look whenever you hear the podcast, and you'll understand immediately what I mean about this. This is good. Val, you need to describe what it is. This is exactly what they've taught us when I when I went to journalism, study journalism. This is 101 of radio, I think, is don't do any of this. Or, or alternatively, go and have a look at the Twitter or Instagram account of the frankly fantastic Dios Jack Miller, uh, which is MotoGP's premier meme account, because the, the, the picture they've posted of Marquez is just glorious. But that's exactly what I'm talking about. We're talking about it because of this and this is going to really engage with people and i think he did that on purpose he knew what he was doing val as chief football correspondent of this podcast it's on you to describe what is in this uh, this tweet for the benefit of listeners all right it's it's leo messi taking a penalty against the french national team and mark marquez in his pose replacing the goalkeeper for that penalty so Moving on from the meme, Marquez, if this, is, if this is him sending his message to Honda, if we think the contract could go in the bin if Saxon Ring doesn't go well, a lot of people during the weekend, when it, or whenever anything's gone wrong for Marquez, have been like, surely this is it, he's on his way out of Honda. But the actual process of getting out of Honda is not going to be a simple one. Honda's not going to let him go easily. Who on earth else is getting any speed out of this bike apart from Rins at Kota? And his contract isn't just this year, it runs through 2024 as well. If he potentially has another year and a half of crashes and misery that he's tied down to, uh, is there actually any realistic scope of him leaving Honda early? Before Simon says no, and he's uh, 
He's saying no right now. Shaking, with, my, with head, head. shaking yes. my head already. Um, my motorsport belief is still that if a rider or a driver or whatever is clearly fed up and is somewhere where they do not want to be, then all the roads usually lead to one place. I mean, there are some exceptions, but usually. And it maybe would not be that difficult to convince somebody at Honda to go, he does not want to be here anymore and we do not have to pay him an exorbitant amount of money for the year remaining that that he does not want to be there for anyway, even though that would be a brutal climb down and PR admission of mega failure and very, very, very bad. Uh, but that's just, you know, that's just something I want to say intuitively. Obviously, if another person at Honda goes, nobody else can ride this bike or do anything with it, and we do not want to finish P20 in every race in 2024, then maybe keeping him and making him stay is is worth it. And we should say that we don't know that he like definitely wants out or whatever. I'd, I'd probably swap to a Ducati if he had the opportunity, but that opportunity isn't currently available. And given the reaction of Ducati to how he angered Banyaya, I don't think that opportunity is coming anytime soon. They do not seem particularly bothered by trying to butter themselves up to Mark Marquez, which suggests to me that not interested. I mean, I think he'd switch to a Moto2 bike for uh, Saxon Ring right now. <laughs> um, the, the, the problem that everyone faces is that I, so I think Honda will hold him to his contract because that's partly, that's how Honda operate. Uh, partly because they paid his salary whenever he sat at home for three years. That's true. That's very true. Uh, and that will be remembered. And the only way I can see him legally getting out of his contract in a way that will kind of satisfy Honda will be with, I would imagine there's an escape clause in there. I would imagine that the escape clause is at least a year's salary. We think his salary is about 25 million euros a year. And someone's going to have to fork that up for him to walk away. That is half of another MotoGP team's annual budget for the season. That is like that's that's like half of what KTM pay to run two, four MotoGP bikes and two factory teams a year. Um, Aprilia straight up cannot afford that. There is no way on earth Aprilia can afford that. Yamaha, I don't think, can afford that. I think the only two factories that can are Ducati, who aren't particularly interested, um, and, and KTM. KTM maybe can, but they've already got a problem with too many people to put onto bikes. Yeah. The, the only reason that Ducati, I can see Ducati wanting Mark Marquez, is to deny him to someone else. But right now, they'd rather he stayed at Honda on a shitbox Honda and was denied being a champion that way than having to pay for the privilege because they can just swoop in at the end of 24 and take him then anyway. And I feel like KTM might have a bit of a similar thought as well. Um, yeah, it, it would take a really, really significant shift in a lot of things at MotoGP before there was an opportunity for Mark Marquez to walk away from that contract before the end of the 24 season. Yeah, I, I mean, I... I we don't know anything about the escape clause. For me, twenty-something million. Maybe it's maybe it's in the contract or whatever. That's the number. But that, I mean, you probably can negotiate something if you make it clear you do not want to ride it in twenty twenty-four and do not want to be paid an insane amount of money for the privilege too. So that money can be saved. That's a a gain, I guess. Um, 
but he, he needs to have somewhere to go. And we, we know it's probably not Ducati. We know it's not Yamaha. So it's, you know, it's a Prilly or a KTM. I think KTM would consider it. I, I would be shocked if they don't. I mean, it would be, honestly, it would be negligent if they don't, despite yeah. the fact that they're in a very good yeah, place. Yeah, it frankly would. Um, but it's, you know, it's not that simple. You'd have to, now would be the time to start putting out feelers and being like, so if I figure out a way to, to extricate myself, there's, there's definitely a place for me, right? Like 100%. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think he'd, he'd be interested in RC, RC16. I think Maybe. most people would be at this point. But I also think that the, the most realistic option, if he went to Honda and said, there is no way on earth that I'm riding this bike next year, is that they say, okay, you are not riding the bike next year, but guess what? You're not riding anyone else's bike either. Hmm. Would you do that? To, like, I, I, know, I know the context of having, you know, covered all the salary and getting no, getting minimal return of investment on the current big contract. As, as good as Marcus yeah. has been at some points, I mean, the injury is the overriding story of this big contract. He has not been 100 million euros no. good for this contract. Well, yeah, it's no. it's been impossible. I mean, maybe he was 100 million euros good on Saturday morning. Like, that's 100 well, million, but he's not been... You know, yeah, he's, but there's no points for best that. Best ability is availability, as they say in, in certain yeah. sports. Yeah. yeah. The, the, I, I would argue that the last time that Marc Marquez was 100, Euro, 100 million euros good was when he signed this contract. Yeah. Because that true. came during the yeah, yeah. 2019 win everything yeah. season. I mean, during those first laps of her S2020, I mean, you'd pay him a billion, I think, but then the crash happened. Uh, he was still chasing from the back because he'd made a mistake. Yeah, he'd thrown it off, hadn't he, at that point? Yeah, but he was like 20, 20 hours quicker than everybody else. My, you know, my poorly concealed MotoGP belief is he was going to win that championship by margins that are <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I still think Marquez is... is Okay, in terms of how much he's been able to turn up in the last few years, not delivering value, but in terms of what he does every time he's on track, certainly delivering value, at least until he's head first down the gravel trap. And even then, is it better to crash out of second or third than finish 12th? Probably is. If you're Honda, at least you're seeing the Repsol colors near the front somewhere. I'm with you guys in terms of Marquez is the best asset Honda currently has. I cannot see any situation where they're willing to make it easy for that asset to not be on their bike. But their timelines don't align. So that's that's sort of a, a small problem for me. And I don't know, maybe this is taking thinking from another sport and another like a sports team thinking rather than a manufacturer saving face thinking. But the sports team thinking is, you know, either you figure out a way to make a profit of him leaving now or he just walks in 2020, in 2024. But I think everybody at Honda will believe that they can do something for 2024 to make sure they do not lose him that they can improve because if they did not believe that then what's the point of any of this you might as well close the program i i don't think he's the most valuable asset right now i think with a dog of a bike two broken teammates and takaganakagami who's not really pushing that he is their only asset right now he is the only thing that honda have going for them because you know the reality is that whenever it comes to trying to build something better for next season it's going to be mark marquez who entirely leads the development of that because the only thing that they can do right now because of the position that they've been put in is to completely go with whatever he tells them. Like they have to build him a bike for next season at the expense of every other Honda rider. So it's a pretty crap time to be Juan Mir. 
Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. So another past world champion who probably wants a better, well, definitely wants a better situation. Does he want a different team is, is the question. Fabio Cortararo finished, I don't know, somewhere 11th. I think so, yeah. Fabio Cortararo finished. I, Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, Fabio Cortararo <laughs> took part in the Italian Grand Prix. He finished in a position, actually finished behind Franco Morbidelli, <laughs> which is something we should perhaps get into over the coming weeks if that becomes a trend. But the most interesting thing that happened Quattararo this weekend actually was off track. He split with his manager. Um, Simon, why has this happened and what does it mean? I, I don't actually know why it's happened. Um, the whole team have been quite quite tight-lipped about it. I actually, I bumped into um, Sir Fabio's assistant, uh, Tom Mobant, who I know quite well and who I needed a favour off earlier. Um, I bumped into Tom in the paddock and I went over to him and he just put his arm around my shoulders and went, Simon, I can tell you nothing. <laughs> and I went, no, 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 Tom, it's not about that. It's not about that. But, you know, that's how tight-lipped they're being about it. Um, it. It comes as a real surprise to me because the two of them were not just, you know, business relationships aside, the two of them were really close. Um, I've I've spent a reasonable amount of time sort of in and out of Fabio's house and stuff like that in Andorra while we've been doing interviews and Eric kind of lives around the corner and is always popping around to catch up and you know the, it, it, he very much was part of the Quattararo family um, and yeah it, it's, it's it's shocked me um, it's not something completely unusual we've seen other writers do this before and, and kind of branch out on their own Um and, and maybe part of it is Quattararo sort of future-proof and are looking, looking forward because it was quite unusually worded in that it, it wasn't that he was going to manage himself. It was that he was going to set up a management company himself. And, and you know, I, I wonder if that's what it is. If the next announcement will be that Jake Dixon and Yomi Sasaki are also managed by Fabio Quattararo now, which is, which is something that others have done in the past. You know, there was Cal Crutchlow kind of did a similar thing, even though it was never kind of formalized in agreements where he looked after a few people coming through. And, you know, so maybe quarter hours at that point in his life where he thinks, you know, he's an adult human rather than a small boy in a set of leathers, which is how he comes across an awful lot of the time because he is a clown. Uh, <laughs> and I mean that the best of ways. Um, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's just a step of increasing maturity. Um, I think it was an... Very interestingly worded announcement, and, I, and I, I agree that it, you know, it's sort of, it's one that raises an eyebrow even when you go beyond the headline of, you know, Fabio Cartara splitting with his manager. From from the interviews he's done, from whatever he said on it, he, I think he try is trying to take more control. He's not going to do it solo or anything, but he is, I guess, instead of ha hiring a manager, he's going to hire people to do sort of the legalese side of things and the, you know, setting up stuff and all that but he wants more control. The fact that it's specified that it would be for 2025 and 2026 is interesting. I think it's a little pointed potentially to a certain employer that is not maybe delivering quite what he wants. Um, it is interesting that he said- You're not talking about Monster Energy. We're not yeah. talking about Monster Energy. It is interesting that he said 
that it was in the works for a while that he and Eric knew for a while that they would not be doing this for the 2025 talks and they've just decided to accelerate it. This, this, this was how he put it as, as far as I remember. So I, to me, I don't want to, I don't want to overreact this a little bit, but it's, it's, it was hard not to read the announcement, not to see the announcement and go not Marquez Alzamora. So not Mark Marquez and his former manager, Emilio Alzamora. But I think you you know where I'm going with this, Simon. Maybe you don't. Uh, Johan Zarco and Laurent Fallon. Uh, and of course, uh, that relationship, I think, fell apart amid heavy buyer's remorse from Zarco with the KTM deal that just did not work at all. That was shocking and nearly completely derailed his MotoGP career for one reason or another, whoever to blame was that. Was it a good deal, bad deal? That's you know besides the point. But that, you know, the split with the late Laurent Fallon happened around that time after that. Um, and right now we're seeing Fabio Carcara split with his manager amid a time where he's clearly unsettled. I think, I mean, maybe I'm putting words into his mouth and saying he's clearly unsettled, but I'm, I mean, look, we just got it. We got to cut through the speak. Sometimes he's clearly unsettled. He's not hiding it particularly well and not trying to hide it particularly well. He does not like the current Yamaha M1. He does not like the fact that it is not improving. He hates the fact that he, two years ago at Mugello, was a clean seven-tenths quicker than he is right now. He is not in a great mood sporting-wise. And I would not be surprised if the management split fits into that somehow. Yeah, that makes sense. I should also say that the statement was actually quite hard to read literally as well because he posted it in Comic Sans. <laughs> it was a Comic Sans, yeah. It was a good one. <laughs> serious announcement ever made in Comic Sans. <laughs> it's not only in Comic Sans, it was also not like the picture was a certain dimension, but the text was a different dimension. So it was like, it was like a Star Wars crawl if it was pressed together by the think, trash compactor from episode four. I think four. It, was like, it was like an Instagram story that someone else had done for him and then like downloaded and sent to him to post on his Instagram story. It, it was not a, yeah, it wasn't a well thought out way to present the news. <laughs> Fabio, if, you, if you're listening, you need someone. Graphic design is my passion. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't necessarily bode well if he's setting up his own his own company that he's relying on clip art to this this degree. Does it? Yeah, like graphic design is not my passion, but I could have done better there. Uh, well, it's also not mine. I'm just I'm trying to get a gig. So <laughs> this is this has turned into into a roast of Fabio Quartararo. All of I love sudden, that you've and... looked at the new Fabio Quartararo management agency. I thought graphic design that's my role, and it's not comms or strategy or any of the things you're qualified for, but graphic design. Well, you can you can lose quite a bit of money and ruin people's MotoGP, Moto2, Moto3 careers if you don't <laughs> get the strategy right. Whereas, you know, I can probably do a statement, make it look okay for a web page. <laughs> we should uh, let's move the focus back on track a little bit to uh, to round off. Uh, we we're kind of concluding that the title battle is effectively over probably wasn't ever really there in the first place the championship just fibs to us a little bit we've said on the few recent podcasts it does feel like if any team is going to get in Banyaya's way it's going to be KTM KTM was second best in the results this weekend to Ducati but also I felt like KTM's biggest contribution to the weekend was actually roadblocking a little bit to let uh, to let Banyaya get away what do we make of KTM's Mugello weekend the 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 Thoughts on the KTM boys actually were actually quite they were quite interesting after the race because this wasn't one of those like K 
KTM up and down races where they've been strong and then they were weak, like we're used to seeing. Um, first of all, Brad Binder was quite pointed to say that in a previous, in, in literally any previous year, finishing fifth at Mugello would have been something that they'd been popping bottles of champagne open to celebrate downstairs. So the fact that he was a little bit peeved at it was actually a really good sign of the progress they've made. And then he also put all of his, uh, like he put all of the problems in Sunday's race down to the wrong tire choice. He, he said he should have went to the soft tire. The medium tire was a bit too hard. It was spinning and he destroyed the tire and had nothing left to give at the end. Um, so he, he was only upset in that he kind of self-sabotaged by going with that tire and not that the KTM wasn't performing. Um, and on the other side of the garage, Jack Miller was just delighted to have finished a race at Michello, to be perfectly honest. Um, he like just went through a list of all his previous terrible, terrible performances here where he's either fallen off or finished 16th. And uh, yeah, w- was was actually quite pleased with 7th. Um, Briefly thought it was his worst, his best ever performance at Mugello until his press officer told him that he'd finished sixth year in a Ducati. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he wasn't upset. So this, it might not have looked like the previous weekends we've seen from KTM, but this was not a bad KTM weekend. And and for me, they are still very much the, the, the second best team to Ducati in the championship at the minute. I, they're clearly second best because Aprilia had a worse weekend, I think, pretty obviously. We'll, we'll get to to them in a second, but it was. I think it was pretty bad because this this RC sixteen is maybe not quite the all rounder we th- we thought it was. Maybe because I think expectations were higher coming into Mugello, remembering what they said on Thursday, and it was a bit of a letdown in the end, but. It also sort of underlines what I guess Brad Binder needs to be a factor in this championship challenge. If if Banyaya gathers his all together, and it really doesn't matter because it's over. When Banyaya stumbles, Binder, even on bad weekends, he scores. He rakes. I mean, in the sprint, he collided with Alex Marquez. That cost him points because of the of the penalty. The penalty that I mean, we we've all had, I think, mixed feelings on shouldn't spend another 15 minutes relitigating here but in, in any case it wasn't like an egregious horrible mistake and it wasn't his own crash but you know when when given the opportunity when slightly luckier than he was there i guess maybe also slightly less aggressive i don't know he he, he brings home the points p5 there is is very good i think i think it was, it was really really again a very very good score i don't think it was an amazing performance but i think it's a good score so, you know, he's hanging in there, but when, when the Ducatis are like, there's six of them ahead of you, what can you do? Well, th- this is this is the point. Like you say, he brings home the points, but this weekend he brought home 11 points to Banyai's 37 points because even with Binder being Captain Sunday, there's a ton of Ducatis in between them. And that's why for me, as impressive as KTM season has been, as impressive as Binder always is, if anyone is going to be there to pick up on a Banyaya stumble, it's going to be another Ducati. Uh, Marco Bezecchi is still second in the championship, 21 points behind now. Podium in the sprint race, fairly anonymous in the main race. Kind of what you'd expect a second year rider uh, for a satellite team like VR46 to be doing. The really interesting championship one for me now is someone who I have um, criticised quite a lot on past podcasts for 
mostly going enormously quick and then flying down the road on his face. Jorge Martin has not had a disaster for some time and has had quite a lot of podiums in that time. He's now within 24 points of the championship lead, was on Banyai's tail for a lot of the Grand Prix. I would say for me, certainly Jorge Martin is now no, <laughs> Banyaya stumble inherited title favorite. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to gloat a bit because it never lasts. I called it. I called it Jorge Martin is going to be a factor in this in some way or another. Problem is that, I mean, this wasn't like he emphasized over and over and over again that he just doesn't vibe with this track. And despite this, the performances were good all around. Sprint was good. Qualifying was pretty good. Main race was real good. Real, real good. I mean, aided by the, the Miller roadblock a little bit, but just very, very good. Just limiting the points lost to Banyaya, closing in on Bateki in the standings. I fancy him more than Bateki to in the championship, certainly. Even though, arguably, I suspect this is a much stronger Bateki track than a, than a Martin track. But Martin is fast enough at his peaks to be a, a problem. And I think his peaks, over one lap, certainly, they're frequent. In races, I mean, up and down, yeah. But he can be a problem, but it, it still, it will, would take Banyaya stumbling a fair amount still. And I just don't know how long we can rely on that because he's, he's not a calamity, Pekka Banyaya, so. I mean, I'm gonna say the same thing I always say. Satellite bikes can't win, can't win world championships. Um, <laughs> I, I, I see the potential for Jorge Martin to be a problem for Paco Bagnaya later in this year to be kind of the same potential that Enea Bastianini had to be a problem last year, where he's like chip and miss wins here and there and taking away a few points here and there. But the difference this year is that Bagnaya is not going to have a, a Fabio Quartararo figure hotness heels to close down that he's trying to get away from. Um, I think what we'll see as the year progresses is that maybe Martin can maintain this form and maybe there's days where he's strong enough to pass best, uh, Bagnaya and get away from him and Bagnaya just lets him go because he doesn't need to risk it for five points or, or two points if it's a sprint race. Um, I think he's got things well enough under control this year in terms of the bigger picture that you know, he, uh, Martin can crack on and win races if he wants. And and actually, the same thing probably applies to Bastianini later in the year as well, once he comes back into form and recovers from injury, because we know he's going to be capable of winning races on that bike. And I think Bagnaya is just going to kind of look at them and say, you know what, boys, off you go. I've got a championship to defend. And in the end, he will defend it. We should hit one last off-track topic. Like we say, there been quite a lot of off-track topics this weekend. It's, it's, an, off -tra it's, it's an on-track topic. Well, okay. Kind of. It doesn't involve a MotoGP bike. We have our... Hitting off track. But it does involve hitting things on track. Though. Well, in, yeah, true. We have our second MotoGP rider carelessness of the mobile phone on a bicycle calamity to cover. Who would like to tell the listeners what The world's most expensive PSA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kids, don't ride, don't ride your bicycle and text on your mobile phone at the same time because you too could end up or, or your your heel is going to be full of blood and you're going to have to drain it before exactly race you too could be, end up like Alessia yeah, and previously Alex yeah. Rins um, yeah uh, Alessia Spagaro went out Sunday morning or on Thursday morning to ride some laps of the track he was texting on his phone he went too fast and he fell off 
Um, not quite as egregious as Alex Rins riding into the back of a parked stationary van on a start-finish straight at Barcelona. Yeah, I still think that is worse. Well, I, I actually went and double-checked. Um, I reckon from the According to Google Maps, from the point where he started to see the van to the point he rode into it, he had 750 meters to avoid it. So that will always be the worst thing. That is, it doesn't get any worse than that. That is the monumental failure. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it meant that Espargaro went into the weekend battered. Um, I went to see him on Thursday afternoon and like he looked like... He'd been dragged across the paddock by his heels at about 40 miles an hour because there was skin missing from everywhere. Yeah. Um, he, he hasn't told us what exactly he did in the crash, but you know we're talking like all the arms, all the legs are, are cut and scraped the way only a cycling crash can do. And as Val said, he landed really heavily in his heel and he's been having blood drained from it because it's swelling and capturing blood. Um, he doesn't know what he did exactly. He was leaving uh, Mugello on, on Sunday to fly home for further scans and checkups on, on Monday morning. Uh, but he did you know, take the opportunity to make the point that it wasn't why he had a really tough weekend in Mugello and that Aprilia just weren't there this weekend, which is kind of evidenced by the fact that none of the Aprilias were really there this weekend. Yeah. Um, I think that yeah, th th this was just not their weekend. And in reality, if he was going to pick one weekend to do something really, really stupid on his push bike, it was probably this one because <laughs> there wasn't going to be a repeat of last year's uh, podium anyway. Weirdly, it is it is basically like a heroic weekend if you ignore the circumstances of the injury. If you just forget how it happened, really impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If, 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 that, if that corner had hit him um, instead of him hitting it, this would have been a great weekend, you know? Yeah. But this is a Jorge Lorenzo at Aston, except stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, the, the, I suppose the fact that a van isn't involved means at least he can say, well, I didn't do exactly the same as Rins. I did learn from that. I, I do look where I'm going when there's large stationary vehicles in my path. But I, yeah. So when it comes to giving safety advice to my kids on their bikes at much lower speeds and with stabilizers and helmets in our garden, I, I don't think any MotoGP rider is going to be offered as, a, as an example whatsoever at the moment. Uh, thank you for your company, listeners. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Val. We're going to wrap it up there and look forward to the race that will decide Mark Marquez's entire future I've decided based on the contents of this of this podcast when we when we're recording again uh, Sunday night or Monday morning next weekend will we hear the sound of a, of a shredder firing up and bits of paper or possibly bits of Honda uh, being being put through it uh, Simon will let you get out of the Mugello circuit now um, we, we have seen plenty of Hondas get shredded this weekend already true yes, yeah you don't true. need a shredder you, you just need to ride them <laughs> <laughs> or will Mark Marquez be injured next weekend because he's trying to rewrite his contract while cycling on Thursday morning? This is the oh, other, I hope not, man. The other danger. Uh, thank you for your company, listeners. Uh, we'll be back in your ears on the Monday morning after Saxon Ring next weekend. Have an excellent week. The Athletic.